Hey everybody, welcome back to Reason in Theology. We're doing a segment here of 1P3, which is Louis Dizon's segment on the show. So I have Louis with me and joined by returning guest Dale Glover with Real Seekers. He's going to be talking about his uh, conversion experience, kind of going from agnosticism to a faith in Christ Jesus. So that's what we're up with today. Dale, let me welcome you back to the show first. How are you? Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, glad to be back. Uh, I think last time I was on, we were talking about the Shroud. And, That's right. Uh, this time I get to go beyond that because uh, I'm not just a, a Shroud-only Christian. I think that there's <laughs> lots of great evidence for, for Jesus. So. Yeah. yeah, and that was a wonderful episode. So if y'all want a presentation on the Shroud of Turin, is it authentic or not? Go and watch that. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Lewis, welcome back. How are you? Oh, I think you're on mute. I can't hear you. I uh, might want to check your audio yeah, settings see. there. Hello, testing. Yeah. How about? I, can, I can hear you now. I just had to turn it off and on again. That solves 90% of technical problems. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, we can hear you now. And uh, welcome back to the show. Great to have you on. Well, hey, you know what, Lewis, this is your segment. So why don't you just take it wherever you want to go? I'm just here to facilitate. Yeah. This is your show. Yeah. So for those who recall, Dale is a longtime friend of mine going all the way back to my Protestant days. And we used to go to the same Reformed Baptist church, funny enough. And I remember for the longest time, he was actually a skeptic of Christianity. Like he was open to the faith, but he had a lot of questions and he would um, pepper me and Tony Costa and our Baptist pastor with all his questions. And then he finally came to the Christian faith, which roughly coincided with the time that I left the Baptist church and became Catholic. I know, so I know. <laughs> a story for another day. But yeah, so here he's going to share some of his faith journey and the reasons for why he embraced the Christian faith. So uh, why don't you, you know, walk us through your journey? All right. All right. So let me just share my screen here. Um, slides. Let me know when that's, uh, is that up? Yep, it is up. All right. Awesome. So, so yeah, my apologetics journey, obviously, as, as Lewis said, became an agnostic. But before that, uh, I grew up as a Christian uh, from childhood, um, always within the Protestant, um, Presbyterian and Baptist denominations. Um, so yeah, I, I believed uh, wholeheartedly in Jesus uh, growing up into my adulthood. And it wasn't even, uh, you know, a university thing. It was after I graduated university in my first job, uh, about a year after I started my first job at the World Trade Group in uh, sales. Um, and I encountered a Jehovah's Witness who was passionate about her faith. Uh, her name was Shauna, and she started sharing it with myself and some others, uh, friends at work. And I felt to myself, like, okay, well, if you're actually witnessing and stuff, I, I'm going to actually should do that myself. So I started sharing my faith, encountering some of the Jehovah, some of her beliefs, uh, talking about the Trinity and stuff like that. And it was during these discussions that a bunch of atheists, uh, this was a British company. So yeah, we had a bunch of atheists and uh, they overheard it and they, they started challenging me on other things about errors in the Bible, uh, creation and evolution stuff. And at this time I was a young earth creationist. Um, 
so yeah, I, I didn't hear, I hadn't heard about a lot of the scientific details. So I started getting into discussions with them about my faith and, you know, I, they would raise certain objections and that sort of thing. And I, I would raise to them very generalized knowledge about, you know, apologetics or positive reasons to believe such as, you know, I'd vaguely known about Gary Habermas and Lee Strobel's stuff and stuff like that. But it was around this time that I, I really started realizing that in terms of their objections, I couldn't just dismiss them. Um, in order to have a well-rounded or a warranted belief in Christianity, you need to have an understanding of the totality of the evidence, both the positive and the negative. And I had not really um, researched in depth the negative evidences and had an informed opinion on some of these topics. So yeah, one thing led to another. And because of that, I eventually kind of lost my faith. I realized that you can't, in order to be warranted, you have to look at all of the evidence and you can't just look at one side of the issues. So yeah, that led into my period of being an agnostic that only lasted for about six months. Um, and then after that, I became a general theist for the next eight years, as Lewis was talking about. And over that time, I was lucky enough to work with some of the great experts, you know, people like Dr. Tony Costa or Gary Habermas, especially were very helpful to me. Um, but even outside of Christian scholars, I was lucky and appreciative of people like Shabir Ali, uh, Keith Augustine, for example, who's an atheist, um, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Tovia Singer, I think was another one. He's, he spent his entire afternoon at the airport helping me with my messianic prophecies questions and stuff like that. So yeah, I was very lucky to kind of work through the positive and negative evidences and uh, create a systematic method for studying these and putting it together to make an overall judgment, you know, which religion, if any, is true. And on May 5th, 2018, this is when I finally finished my research after eight years. And I realized there is a 53.14% overall probability that Christianity was true. And all the other religions were below 50%. So at that time, I put my faith in Christ. And um, from there, I started a couple months later, I started up a show called Skeptics and Seekers with an atheist co-host named David Johnson. And, you know, each week we would write up a blog on a specific issue and then debate that topic on the podcast. Um, finally, from there, I branched out to doing my own thing, Real Seekers, and I've been doing that since about 2019, I think. Um, I've also been a co-host on other Christian shows, such as the Faith Unaltered podcast. So I know you guys, Lewis, you debated uh, David Russell, who's my friend, and he's a was the Protestant co-host of the Faith Unaltered podcast, um, along with Tyler Fowler, who's been on the show. Um, and I'm also a co-host on the Theo Geeks podcast with David Russell as well. And I've done a bunch of guest appearances, such as uh, the Reason and Theology channel. Um, okay, so to kind of summarize, I, I created an 11 premise or uh, deductive argument for the truth of Christianity or for God's endorsement of Christianity as the religion he wanted me to follow or humans to follow. And I'm not going to go through the argument itself just to save time, but just to kind of summarize the main elements of it. So basically, the first part is I had to start with God exists. And by God, I, I mean a real maximally great being he, he has he is a being that has all of the great making properties to the maximal possible degree um 
second, the second element though is it's not enough that God exists. He also has some goals because he is a free will being just like we are. And he chose to create the universe freely. So in order to make a, you know, there's a rationality condition in the libertarian free will notion. So he must have had a goal or a reason for why he created the universe and specifically human beings within it. Um, and I think that he wants as many human beings as possible to achieve that ultimate goal or that ultimate purpose. A way that he could do that is through divine revelation. Uh, he could reveal to us what our ultimate purpose is and how to achieve it. And that's typically what religions tend to claim to be. Um, however, there is a problem because there is confusion. Well, what religion is God's divine revelation? How, how do we know uh, what our goal is and how to achieve it? So on that front, God has to provide certain clarifying mechanisms. He has to clarify, okay, this religion, not the others. And how he would do that is where I get into my study of the Christian evidences on the positive side. So I, I invented the this thing called the religion authenticating miracles. There are miracles that their specific goal is to authenticate this is the religion God endorses, not you know that the other religions or something like that. Um, finally, I also argue that it is impossible for God to provide religion authenticating miracles for a false religion or a religion that's not conducive for us achieving our ultimate purpose. Uh, so therefore, whatever is revealed by the Rams, we can have uh, confidence in, in following. And finally, the last bit is, it just so happens Christianity uniquely has these religion authenticating miracles and the highest overall probability above 50%. And so we can trust that God wants us to follow Christianity. Um, so that's in a nutshell. Here's just the argument in um, standard form. But um, okay, so religion authenticating miracles. I've put a lot of work into how do we identify miracles? And essentially philosophers and you know even Michael Kona and biblical scholars and apologists, there are usually three main elements, right? So number one, you have to prove an event took place so that, you know, that there's something that needs to be explained. The second is that it's, you know, they'll say it's supernatural in some way, or it's, it's improbable to occur given natural laws. And then finally, it takes place within a context charged with religious significance. So I've kind of expanded on the, the two criteria here. And I said, it, we don't need to necessarily prove it's supernatural. It just needs to be extraordinary in some way. And there are three main ways that I think I can think of to do that. So the first is you can make a mechanistic type argument. So this is what we hear all the time, right? Like all the ordinary naturalistic mechanisms or explanations have been proven to be sufficiently improbable uh, to be explanations for a given event. Right. So that this is where, you know, people like Gary Habermas and that they'll get into, well, the hallucination hypothesis, that's improbable. The, the you know, the conspiracy theory, the, that's improbable. And so that's kind of a mechanistic type argument. Um, the other way is through its uniqueness, the event's uniqueness. Um, you know, and I say here it has to be unique despite a sufficient opportunity for duplication. So. For example, with the Shroud of Turin images, one of the reasons I think the formation of those images is miraculous or extraordinary is because they're unique, despite having a sufficient natural, right? I mean, how many millions of people have been buried in burial shrouds over the 
the things, uh, the centuries, and the only uh, imaged shroud that we have today is the Shroud of Turin. Or there's also artificial opportunities for duplication, such as the lab and field experiments done by scientists in the 20th and 21st century trying to replicate the shroud and failing. Um, finally, there's also extraordinary circumstances. So you, you could argue not the event itself is extraordinary, but the circumstances surrounding it. So perhaps an example of this might be in the timing. So with the nativity story, the, you know, the three, I forget what it is, but there's a planets and stars and they just happen to align uh, on Jesus, uh, you know, the day he was born. So in that case, the, I mean, stars align all the time in the heavens. There's nothing extraordinary about that. But the timing that it happened right at the moment Jesus was born, you might argue that's extraordinary. Um, okay, finally, in terms of the religion authenticating context, um, so basically there are three sub-criteria here. So the uh, miracle or the event has to be sufficiently attached to the religious context, right? It has to be attached. So for example, the resurrection, that's obviously attached to the Christian religion. It's an essential belief of Christianity and that sort of thing. And it also has to serve to authenticate the religion. So in, in some way it's saying, hey, this is constituting proof that this religion is endorsed by God. And finally and thirdly, it can't be subsumable to another religion. So these are for miracle uh, miracle cases when, let's say, the virgin birth, right? Well, you might say, well, that proves Christianity, right? Well, it also uh, can be used to prove Islam because uh, Muslims believe in the virgin birth too. Or if we look at Moses parting the Red Sea, pretend we can prove that happened and it was extraordinary. Um, well, who gets it? Jews and Christians, and I think Muslims also believe in it as well. So this is the issue of subsumability. And my take on that is that the first religion chronologically to claim a given miracle is by default the one that gets it, unless the later subsuming religion, number one, can prove that the miracle isn't contradictory with its doctrines. Um, so, you know, some might argue, for example, well, the resurrection, that contradicts Islam because uh, Surah 4 says that Jesus didn't die and wasn't crucified. So Muslims couldn't subsume the resurrection, they might argue. Um, number two, the subsuming religion has its own independent religion authenticating miracle. And number three, the subsuming religion has an overall probability uh, of 50% and or higher than the uh, first religion to claim that miracle. Uh, so that's that's how I go about identifying miracles or these religion authenticating miracles specifically. Okay, cool. So let's get into well, what what is it that converted me? And I said the the first thing is I started out for a six month period uh, around 2009 2010. I forget which year it was, but I, for six months I was an agnostic. I had lost my belief in God, and and uh, eventually after that, thankfully, I became a general theist. Um, so what were the kind of arguments that really played a role in my realizing I do believe in God and becoming a general theist. So the, the first one is the modal ontological argument. It's, it's not popular in philosophical circles. It's frowned upon, but I think this is the str single strongest and best argument that uh, we have for general theism. Um, there was also the cosmological argument or contingency argument that played a role for me. Uh, the moral argument was one. And finally, I, I had my properly basic belief in, in God, and that was really strong as well. 
Um, at the time, there was negative evidences that I considered. So these were the three that I considered at that time, the problem of evil, uh, the hiddenness of God, and the internal incoherence of God. Um, so just kind of looking at the modal ontological argument, here are its, its premises, kind of as Alvin Plantinga puts it. Um, and I qualify it. It's, it's an argument for a real maximally great being. So that's a bit different than Plantinga. And again, real max, the real there is, is from Yujin Nagasawa. And it's basically saying, look, it's a being that's got all the great making uh, properties. So that's the same as Alvin Plantinga and William Lynn Craig's version. But the real there is qualifying, but it has these properties only to the maximal com possible degree. Whatever that degree is, it has it. Um, so it, by that, on that front, when we're saying with premise one, it's possible that a real maximum grade being exists. It's almost true by definition because we're just saying, well, you know, in terms of its properties, whatever degree is maximally com possible to have those properties together, then that's what the real maximum great being is. That's what God is. So it's almost true by definition there, I would say. Um, but yeah, there, there are four main types of objections to the ontological argument. Uh, you can try to deny its logical validity. Virtually nobody does that because it's easy to make a valid argument. Um, or they'll try to say, well, it's logically fallacious. It's, it's begging the question. And Again, the, these kind of uh, appeals to fallacies have really been disproven over the years. Philosophers have done the work. They're, they're not begging the question or committing obvious fallacies. Um, you can also deny the soundness or truth of the premises. So on this front, most, most people will deny this first premise. Uh, surprisingly, a lot of atheists and scholars accept the truth of all the premises of this argument. It's only really premise one that they deny. The possibility premise. Um, so yeah, that's what most work is done today on is establishing, is it in fact ontologically possible that this real maximally great being exists? And it's important to note that this isn't just an epistemic possibility. It's not like, well, I'm, I'm dumb. So as far as I know, God exists. Yeah, it's possible. Maybe. Uh, it's not an epistemic possibility. It's ontologically or metaphysically, is it possible? for God to exist. Um, and then finally, the most popular objections are appeal to parody. So this was the very first uh, thing I think Thomas Aquinas himself gave the first parody argument, right? With the maximally great island argument, or, you know, uh, some people appeal, well, there, maybe there's a maximally great pizza. I think that's Victor Stenger who says that. Um, there's also the quasi maximally great being. So that's, it's saying, well, it's possible that not a real maximum great being exists, but a quasi one. So he, he's God minus, as uh, T-Jump said, minus his, uh, he has no knowledge or intelligence at all. And that's what he calls the magic pineapple thing. It's, it's essentially a quasi maximum great being. is just, it's a being exactly like God, but it has some kind of deficiency. So it's not knowledgeable or powerful to the maximal degree and or it's missing one of the proper great making properties altogether. And then finally, you could say a real maximally evil being or the devil parodies. Um, so that's how skeptics come back with that. There's also the properly basic belief in God. And I, I think this is how most people throughout history, most people in the Bible uh, have come to belief in God and also in, in Christianity, as we'll see later on. It's not through objective argumentation or philosophical evidences and arguments and stuff like that. 
um, it's more about this subjective evidence uh, given to us through or produced through our faculties like the census divinitatis and or as I believe, I think the faculty that allows us to relate and know about God is the spirit within our souls. Um, so I take J.P. Moreland's position on the spirit versus soul. And uh, the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirits and that produces immediately and intuitively within us this properly basic belief that, yeah, God, God exists or Christianity is true or Jesus did rise from the dead, whatever the proposition is. And yeah, I think, you know, atheists and skeptics, I was on Pine Creek Doug's show and he tried to say, well, you know, this appeal to properly basic beliefs, this is how do you distinguish it between a, a Mormon saying, well, they've got a burning in the bosom that, you know, X, Y, Z is true or something like that. And the point is here, I think William Lane Craig makes it brilliantly is look, count, counterfeit claims are meaningless. This is a subjective evidence, meaning I'm privy to my own properly basic beliefs, whether they're proper with respect to uh, the criterion for knowledge warrant or not. I'm not privy to some Mormon, you know, giving a claim that they have that they also have the same thing. So I, I'm not obligated to believe them. I know internally that I'm warranted um, and I have no knowledge about whether they're warranted or not. So counterfeit claims don't do anything to disprove properly basic beliefs or anything like that. Um, okay, on the atheist side, um, I think when I went through my period of agnosticism, uh, really the problems of evil and divine hiddenness were huge for me. and. Uh, I would say more, I found out later is more on an emotional level, but just looking at them intellectually as well. Um, look, there's this issue, right? It's, it, you kind of have, okay, if evil or divine hiddenness exists in any certain form, then that means God does not exist. Premise two, well, evil and or divine hiddenness in the specified form obviously does exist. And then you conclude, therefore, God does not exist. This is kind of the underlying structure. Um, for all evil problems of evil or divine hiddenness arguments. And the flaw is the premise number one, right? This is obviously an unsound premise. And for me, I really, uh, what clicked for me was Dr. William Lane Craig uh, and Molin learning about Molinism, which is a, originally a Catholic position. Um, but I think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely true. And it was that that really helped me um, understand how God's providence, he, could be sovereign and, and everything is working together for the ultimate good. Um, and yet we also are able to preserve our libertarian free will. God is not the cause or source of, of the evil or, or that sort of thing. We have, yeah, um, we can explain any deficiencies in the world because of our free will. We freely choose to bring about the uh, evil and suffering and stuff like that in this world. So through Molinism, that really provided me the sound mechanism to make sense of putting these two aspects together and realizing there wasn't a contradiction on that front. So that uh, totally changed my life when I when I learned about Molinism. Um, okay, the, the other argument was the internal incoherence of God. So th this one says, well, look, God isn't contradictory with some external fact about the world, like evil or you know, God's not uh, showing up in the way he should be. Instead of saying, look, just take God himself as a concept and internally his own attributes are contradictory or incoherent. So, you know, you have the age old question about God's omnipotence, right? So 
can God lift a rock that's so big he can't, uh, can he create a rock that's so big he can't lift it? Well, either way you answer, he's lacking a power. He either can make it, and so he lacks the power to lift it, or he can't make it, and therefore he lacks the power to create this rock. Um, but that's just totally illogical, right? Because logically contradictory things, they're not they're not things that exist. That logical impossibilities aren't um they're, they're not like a power that someone can lack um and that sort of thing so it's not a diminishment is what i'm saying um god is essentially a logical being and since god exists in every logically possible world there are no nothing external to him where logical impossibilities exist as though some god lacks something um and then there's you know where you go where there's two or more attributes conflicting with each other so take God's omniscience and his moral perfection. So you, you might hear skeptics and atheists say, well, look, God, he's not, he can't be omniscient because he doesn't know what it's like to be a sinner or, and, or the opposite. He's, he's imperfect. He's not morally perfect because he, he must know exactly what it feels like to be lustful or to sin or, or to be guilty or something like that. But again, these are logical impossibilities that you're appealing to. And I would just argue that, Look, it's impossible. God, when we say he's omniscient, he knows all true propositions. Um, it's not to say that he has all experiential knowledge, because that would entail logical contradictions. God is not a schizo. He doesn't have any clue what it, the qualia, or what it feels like to be Dale Glover, because I'm Dale Glover, and I alone am Dale Glover. God is God. Um, it would be logically impossible for God to know he's God and that he's Dale. That doesn't make sense. That's a schizo. Um, or to he doesn't know what it's like, feels like, the qualia of being a sinner, to experience doing a sin and stuff. That's an imperfection, uh, logically speaking. So that's kind of the, the answer of how we would address some of these internal incoherence issues. Um, okay, cool. So going from general theist to Bible-believing Christian, and just so I know, how am I doing on time? Should I speed up or am I going good pace? Good pace for me. Yeah. Good pace. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. So great. So that's how I became a God, uh, uh, sorry, a believer in general theism. But then it took, after that six month period, it took about eight years uh, of my journey studying uh, the evidences for and against the various religions to figure out well, which religion does God want me to, find, uh, to follow? And as we know, I did in the end, in 2018, become a Bible-believing Christian. Um, so there are essentially four evidences that uh, convinced me on the positive side. There are four examples of religion-authenticating miracles. Um, so the first was the formation of the Shroud of Turin's images, the body and bloodstain images. I co covered that in my last show a little bit as to why I think that. Um, secondly, there was also the historical evidence for the resurrection. I mean, my gosh, I studied with Gary Habermas. Of course, we talked about this uh, over and over again until I was blue in the face, right? So, uh, yeah, I, I think that the there's good historical evidence on a balance of probabilities. Uh, I think it was like 57.32% uh, in the end that from the appearance to the 12 specifically, that is uh, qualified, explained by a religion authenticating miracle. So it's interesting to note that I don't, unlike most apologists, I don't go for the cumulative case argument. 
And I don't, I, even though I think the other facts, like the empty tomb is a historical fact, the other appearances to the women, um, the uh, appearance, uh, single appearance to Peter, the appearance to Paul, James, the appearance to the 500, I think that these are historical facts requiring an explanation. But on the explanatory level, I could think of an equally probable natural explanation. So it was only with respect to the appearance of the 12 that I, I was like, well, there isn't an equally probable natural explanation. This is a religion authenticating miracle. Um, the other one, thirdly, was the vindication prediction argument. And I'll get into that when we get to it. And finally, my good old friend, the subjective properly basic belief produced by the inner witness or testimony of the Holy Spirit. And additionally, um, I haven't really done all the work to fin finalize it, but I think there may be a fifth example of a religion authenticating miracle from messianic prophecies so in this case i wouldn't be arguing directly uh you know a fulfilled prophecy type argument in this case i would be arguing from extraordinary circumstances it's a circumstantial argument and essentially what it is is i i say well given the provable uh important and relevant messianic prophecies in the old testament and given what the Gospels say about Jesus, so I again, I don't have to prove that Jesus actually was or did these, fulfilled these uh, prophecies. I'm just saying, well, it's claimed in the Gospels, it's claimed that he fulfilled these. And that results in a weird circumstance where it's Jesus or bust. Either Jesus is the Messiah that fulfills these Messianic prophecies, or no one is. And I think that's uh, unique. There, that circumstance doesn't come up in other religions where some prophecies might come about for something. And it's it's totally unique. It's Jesus or bust. It's not Jesus Bar Kokhba or bust or Jesus and Jim Bob Jones or bust. Um, and I think that's kind of extraordinary. That We could argue that's an extraordinary circumstance because if it was naturally explainable and just random, why wouldn't we have five candidates? Why is it only Jesus is the only possible person to fulfill these messianic prophecies? So that's an argument I've thought about, I haven't developed, but I think that could be a fifth example of a religion authenticating miracle. Um, okay, so uh, going on in terms of the negative evidences, there are four categories of negative evidences. So these are evidences that said Christianity is not the religion God wants you to follow and or is false. And obviously, I looked at certain things, preservation problems, so lower textual criticism, you know, how is the Bible preserved over the centuries? And, uh, you know, does he allow scribal errors? How could that be allowed and stuff like that? Um, related to it is inerrancy issues. So these are more substantive errors, and they go beyond just minor scribal issues, and perhaps, perhaps were errors in the original autographs themselves. And just an example of something that I thought was an error at the at the time, uh, eight years ago or whatever it was. Um, you know, so for example, uh, the creation and the flood. Um, I thought the Genesis narratives, I thought it's clear Genesis teaches a global flood, uh, if you take it literally and, and that sort of thing. And because there probably wasn't a global flood, I considered that an error, even in the original autographs themselves. It wasn't a preservation issue. Uh, now, I've changed my mind on that issue since, um, basically through William Lane Craig's notion about uh, Genesis 1 through 11 being mytho-history genre. Um, so that issue's been solved. I no longer think it's an error, but just wanted to give you that example 
at the time, I thought it was a historical literal genre and I didn't think it was true. Um, obviously there's moral mistakes and misapprehensions. So these are errors of a specific kind of a moral nature, things that depict God or his commandments for human beings as seemingly being immoral in some way. Um, and then finally we had other human factors. These again, human factors, just arguments that make the Bible or God seem petty or not, not, it's not like it's inspired by God. It looks like it just comes from the hands of human beings living, you know, thousands of years ago who didn't know any better. Um, so that's what I would call the human factors arguments. Um, so yeah, so basically what I did, I plugged, I would assign my own subjective probability values to the various components of these uh, categories of positive and negative evidences. And then I would plug that into Bayes' theorem to get my overall cumulative case. Where, where do I stand on the question? Is Christianity uh, true or not? And on, on that front, you know, it ended with me at 53.14%. And one thing I should say in terms of the negative evidences, I cheated against Christianity because I, you know, I, well, I grew up a Christian, so I probably have this unconscious bias that I want it to be true and that sort of thing. And um, because of that, uh, whereas other every other religion I studied, I went with the default, 50%, which is what, as the prior probability, that's what you should plug in given the philosophical principle of indifference, right? It, either it's true or it's not. It, there's an equal probability before you check out any evidence. But I assigned an automatic 95% against the truth of Christianity on the basis of the negative evidences. Uh, so it was it wasn't it was unrealistic. It was just me saying I'm going to put it to the maximum thing I think it, uh, that can be proven against Christianity. So that means there is only a prior probability of five percent that Christianity was true before before I even started looking at the positive evidences and. The amazing thing with that is that the positive evidences were so strong cumulatively that it even overrided that and made the 95% prior against it. And I, I came to faith. So that just is a testament to how strong the positive evidence is for Christianity. Uh, imagine if I had handled Christianity fairly, it would be way higher than 53. Um, so yeah. Um, okay, cool. So getting into some of the specifics. So the appearance, I mentioned the appearance to the 12 was evidence uh, that I thought was good. Um, so I basically, when I was studying this, I had to establish it in the way any historian would. So what are the historical sources and the general reliability of those historical sources? Um, what about the specific facts within those sources? Can we establish using the criterion of authenticity? that historians like uh, C.B. McCullough would use. And yeah, I would use things like Paul's letters, obviously 1 Corinthians 15, those oral creeds, uh, the Acts sermon summaries, uh, even the gospels, you know, Craig Keener, his book on Luke and Acts uh, was amazing. And I think he's convinced me a lot of the reliability of Luke Acts. And uh, Richard Bauckham's done work on the Gospel of John, but these were my sources. And I would extract using the criterion of authenticity certain facts relevant here. So um, uh, the first is that Jesus predicted his death and subsequent vindication or resurrection to his disciples. Uh, Jesus was indeed dead due to crucifixion. So, you know, he, I refute the swoon theory and that sort of thing. Um, 
And I say that at least a majority, six plus, of the main disciples or apostles had experiences that they believed to entail them seeing the resurrected Jesus after his crucifixion. So um, it's important here that I was being extra skeptical. I, I don't even need to establish that all 12 of the, or 11 of the disciples or apostles had this experience. It, I can establish my argument, even if just the simple majority of them did it um, and that sort of thing. And also I have to say that they claimed to see Jesus he was close up, not far away. So that would take care of an illusion uh, hypothesis. Uh, and they, it was in a recognizable form. Um, obviously, that the recognizable versus not recognizing is an issue with other appearances and that sort of thing. But here with the appearance of the 12, I could establish it was in a recognizable form. And very importantly, it was in a non-glorious, ordinary manner that Jesus appeared to them just like you or I appear. Uh, he wasn't glowing. He wasn't uh, crowned in majesty or or anything like that. And as we're going to see, that bit is relevant for one of the arguments for it being miraculous. Uh, and then finally, they, they saw Jesus either simultaneously or for my uh, one of my arguments, I don't even need that. It was, I forget group appearances. Even if it wasn't a group appearance to the majority of the apostles, I can still prove um, that it happened within a relatively short period of time. And because of that, it is a miraculous appearance. Um, so what were my two arguments at the explanatory level? How did I establish these were this these appearance, uh, this appearance and or appearances were religion authenticating miracles? And the first is that uh, based on the non-glorious nature. So Essentially, um, with the resurrection uh, back in the Jews' belief back in the first century, this was an eschatological uh, claim or resurrection, and they pictured uh, the Son of Man coming in glory. Uh, you know, for example, Jesus at his transfiguration had a shine, was shining, shining face in this, and this is kind of what the Jews expected. Our, our, we would have glorious resurrection bodies if Jesus was uh, raised from the dead by God then he should have been raised gloriously to indicate his vindication. But yet the appearance to the 12, there's no mention of this gloriousness. And instead, they just report seeing him uh, even with wounds and in an ordinary mundane fashion. And that goes against expectation. And because of that, this is a way of proving that the hallucination hypothesis is uh, unlikely or improbable because hallucinations... Uh, tend to be in accordance with our uh, psychological and socially conditioned uh, expectations. And even the social contagion factor would actually work towards supporting this argument. Because think about it, if let's say Peter or one of the apostles or a couple of them saw Jesus and hallucinated him in an ordinary fashion, but then you would say, but the others would probably ha see him in a glorious fashion. And due to social contagion, uh, them talking to each other, over time, the glorious resurrection appearance would take precedence, and that would be the traditions of the appearance of the Twelve in the Gospels. It's unlikely that the ordinary appearance would take over the majority of the, the apostles' glorious appearances. Um, and then finally, the, the other one was the, the one that Gary Habermas and Joseph Bergeron give that the improbability of having simultaneous group hallucinations. And that's, um, yeah, I, I, again, I consulted the 
some of the world's experts in hallucinations that Mike Lacona uh, did. And they confirmed to me what Mike says in his book as well. Um, so that was the appearance of the 12 argument. Um, there's also the vindication resurrection prediction argument. So this one's kind of unique to me, but I, I kind of use Mike Lacona's, his scholarly work, establishing that it's a fact that before Jesus died, he predicted either his resurrection or at the very least his supernatural vindication uh, after his death by God. And, you know, Mike Lacona, he provides about five to six reasons uh, that historians should conclude that, yeah, Jesus did in fact predict this. And since we can prove historically and scientifically, if you include the uh, shroud evidence, that Jesus did in fact probably rise from the dead, uh, thereby being vindicated supernaturally by God after his death, I think that the prediction itself must have been a religion authenticating miracle because it's, it's and in this way we're doubly warranted by proving that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, we get double the warrant. Not only do we have the warrant for a miracle from Jesus' resurrection itself, but also from the fact that Jesus was somehow able to predict that this supernatural event would happen in advance. Um, so this is kind of a, a way of saying we get two miracles for the price of one. Um, so that's my vindication prediction argument. And interestingly, I did one show with my old atheist co-host, David Johnson on Skeptics and Seekers, and he actually agreed with me that, yes, if, if you could prove the resurrection and that Jesus predicted it this would in advance, this would count as an additional miracle. So even uh, the atheists were willing to grant me this as an additional um, double, war double warrant, so to speak. Um, okay, um, so Lewis asked me to cover my encounter with Islam. So my one thing I left out of my testimony there is that back in 2017, there was actually a couple of months where it looked, it looked to me like Islam was true. And this was a, uh, a great test for me because I, I will admit emotionally, um, I didn't I don't like Islam. I didn't want Islam to be true. And I see this as kind of a God was kind of testing me. Look, are you are you a real seeker? Are you honestly seeking truth? Well, if, if you are and the evidence seems to be supporting Islam, it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. You've got to follow the, God's truth. And because of that struggle, I finally overcame and I committed and I said, okay, fine, I'm going to complete my third round of study on the uh, evidences for Islam. And if it comes out that Islam is true, then I'm going to follow it and I'll learn to like it, so to speak. So, um, yeah, this was great because both Lewis and I were, we were friends uh, with Dr. Shabir Ali and I began working with him on the evidences for Islam. So, we discussed a bunch of positive evidences for Islam, you know, the uh, scientific pattern, uh, scientific foreknowledge claims, prophecy claims, uh, the miraculous preservation of the Quran and, and all this stuff. And on the negative side, it was basically the same categories of negative evidence I used against Christianity. There were moral mistakes, preservation problems, stuff like that. Um, but at one point during these two months, it looked to me that all of the proof, those religion authenticating miracles for Christianity could be subsumed by the religion of Islam because I became convinced and still am uh, by Gabriel Said Reynolds, who wrote a paper saying that uh, actually the Quran in Surah 4 doesn't contradict Jesus' death or resurrection. It's, 
it's saying something else that's not contradictory there. And because of that, that removed the obstacle to Islam subsuming the evidence for the resurrection, the evidence for the shroud, which is, again, evidence for the resurrection or Jesus prediction. All, all of that could count towards Islam. And additionally, it looked to me at that time that they had their own independent religion authenticating miracle from the numerical patterns in the Quran. And that was the one thing where I was starting to go, it looks like there may be something to this. And just to specify, it's, it, Shabir Ali gives five categories of number patterns. And so most, all four, the four of the five are, in my opinion, total garbage. You know, the miracle of seven, we find multiples of seven. This, there's nothing special about this. But there were certain patterns in here in the symmetric book or symmetrical patterns. And I was finding these convinced, starting to be persuasive and convincing. But thankfully, again, I had my process of doing three rounds of investigation. And um, it was at this point that I realized, look, this is essentially an intelligent design claim, right? It's saying these patterns, uh, they're not due to natural law. They're not due to random chance, but they're due to intelligent design. And who is the intelligent designer, specifically God, not human beings? And um, so, yeah, I, I totally agreed it, was, it wasn't due to natural law. And I agreed that it wasn't due to human design. That It's just impossible that a human being could purposefully have put these patterns in the 1924 Egyptian version of the Arabic Quran. Um, so there was only two options, random chance or intelligent God, divine intelligent design. And... Um, the way I assess that is through the criteria of William Debsky's specified complexity. And essentially, in order to, the problem with these patterns, I realize is, number one, Muslims don't do the hard work of proving, well, why are we specifying these specific patterns? And um, yeah, I, I won't waste time, but I had examples to show you maybe in the Q&A period. But, you know, like, for for example, why why are we specifying multiples of seven, just to keep it simple? Like, why seven? Why not multiples of six and that sort of thing, right? So the Muslims have to do the work of proving why are we specifying this and not just having fabrications where, well, we've discovered these patterns, so now we're specifying, well, see that these are obviously miracles. No, you, you have to specify independently of the patterns themselves. And secondly, and most importantly, there, there's a mathematical calculation. If you want to see if something is due to design versus random chance, there's a certain calculation. And the Muslims never do the math with the exception of one person, Cahill Seven, who he goes through, he gives you the basic probability simpler, simply, um, simple probability. So, you know, what's the probability that you get a multiple seven? Well, one divided by seven, right? And the more patterns like these multiples of seven you have, well, they you multiply them and it gets lower and lower and lower until it's, oh my gosh, one in a billion chance that we would have these 50 multiples of seven in the Quran. Isn't that amazing? Um, but the problem is the Muslims never do the work of calculating out the available probabilistic resources. And there are two types, right? So there's replicational resources. So obviously the, the Muslims are replicating um, these patterns over and over again until they get a hit and they're just dismissing all of the failures. Um, well, you can't do that. You have to take account of those replicational resources, right? It's kind of like if you want to specify what's the probability I would roll a one on a dice or a die. 
well, it's 1-6, right? But then, well, what's the probability if you can roll it twice and not just once? That's a replicational resource, and that increases the probability. Um, likewise, there are things called specificational resources. So, you know, um, in, in the symmetric pattern, especially, these are complicated compound patterns. It's, it's not just, what's the probability we get a multiple of seven? It's, well, what's the thing uh, if we split the verses into even and odd suras and then split it again into even and odd ayas and, and then we count uh, the number of words and blah, blah, blah. Like it's a compound pattern. And each of these things adds multiple ways that you could have specified the pattern differently. And that will increase the odds that you will randomly just get a hit um, because again, you're just dismissing all of the other uh, specifications that didn't work and you're going with this one. So that was basically what took me out of it is that the Muslims lacked an provable independent religion authenticating miracle because they're not doing the proper math uh, and following the formula that they should to take account of all the probabilistic resources and therefore, these number patterns are are just due to random chance. You can't prove it's due to God's d divine design or something like that. Um, so, yeah. Um, all right. So uh, now in terms of my use of Bayes' theorem, let, let me just ask, how, how am I doing with time? Um, should I rush through this or? I put you guys to sleep, I see. Oh, no. You're fine on time. I'm fine. Okay, good. Hopefully I didn't put you guys to sleep, but uh, okay. So I'll, I'll rush through the base here, and then this will be the last thing of my presentation. So Okay, that's fine. Okay, awesome. So, so yeah, basically, like I said, I assigned subjective probability values to the various evidential components on the positive and negative side. Um, but then you come to this question, well, okay, how do you put it all together to make a cumulative judgment. And this is where uh, my use of Bayes' theorem came in, because you plug those numbers in and out pops a number, an overall uh, cumulative total uh, for whatever you're assessing. And it's important to note, um, sometimes you don't need to calculate cumulative totals. So I, I didn't use Bayes' theorem for every premise. I would use it for certain ones when I required, when I had multiple lines of evidence, all cumulatively counting towards the truth of that premise. So for example, premise number one, God exists. Well, I named multiple positive arguments. You also have to take account of those multiple negative evidences for atheism. Uh, or with uh, my other premise Christ about Christianity, having religion authenticating miracles. You, you have to take uh, account of the multiple uh, positive evidences, but also the multiple negative evidences. Remember those four cat preservation problems, uh, uh, inerrancy issues and stuff like that. And again, there's multiple evidences under each one of those categories too. Um, so Bayes is how I basically put it together. And essentially the formula is just, what's the probability that your hypothesis is true given the evidence and your background knowledge or background evidence? And here's the straightforward formula. So this is a conditional probability. So you have to ask, what's the probability that you would have the evidence you have, um, you know, whatever it is. So what's the probability that we would have uh, the data from the cosmological argument or ontological argument, given we assume God is God exists or that the hypothesis is true. 
And then you multiply that by the intrinsic or prior probability of the hypothesis on our background knowledge. Um, so, you know, for example, when you're arguing for the resurrection, obviously, uh, well, what's the prior probability of miracles? This is a huge area of debate on that front. And, and then you just divide it by the denominator. So this is the same as above plus one minus, right? So you're, you're doing the opposite. What is, what is the probability we would have the same evidence given we assume the hypothesis is false? And what's the prior probability that the hypothesis is false? So this is just probability calculus. This is just the formula that you have to use. Um, so yeah, we can translate that into the resurrection hypothesis. So what is the probability that we would have the empty tomb and the appearance to the 12 and um, you know the appearance to the women, whatever the evidential factors are, given we assume the resurrection hypothesis is true times the prior probability of the resurrection hypothesis. Um, and then the denominator, okay, the only thing we're adding here is well, that we would have the evidence of the empty tomb, the appearances, given the resurrection didn't happen. It's false that Jesus rose from the dead, times the prior probability, the intrinsic probability that the resurrection is false. Um, so yeah, um, I'll skip over the odds form. This is just a different way of calculating in terms of a ratio uh, and comparing two specific hypotheses. Um, so you might use this. What's uh, the probability ratio between the resurrection being true given the evidence compared to the hallucination hypothesis given the evidence? Um, so you're just comparing two specific hypotheses there. Um, one thing in terms of the prior probabilities, this is something that's important because I never see atheists get into this, but there is something called the Jeffrey conditionalization formula that can help us assess the prior probability of a miracle or a religion authenticating miracle. Um, so this is calculated by saying, well, what's the probability um, in this case of the resurrection miracle given our background knowledge and assuming God does exist, times the prior probability that God exists on the background knowledge, um, plus what's the probability that the resurrection is true given the background knowledge and God doesn't exist? So it's, it's saying, well, maybe he rose naturally. What's the probability of that? Um, and then what's the prior probability that God doesn't exist? Um, so atheists and skeptics like Bart Ehrman, the, they always like to focus on this half of the thing and say, well, this is very low. It, I mean, a one in trillion chance that some someone would naturally rise from the dead or just randomly or something like that. But they always ignore this part of the equation, right? Because um, the prior probability that Jesus would have risen from the dead, given God exists and the background knowledge and I would include in this, um, you would have to include a divine psychology component, right? That he would, and not only does God exist, but he also has a sufficient religious motivation for raising Jesus from the dead. Well, then that raises the, the probability quite a bit. Um, it would be virtually 100%, you might even say. Um, so yeah, the, just bear in mind that there is a, a formula for actually count, calculating the prior probabilities of miraculous events. And atheists typically just want to focus on this or maybe even this. But in debates like Bart Ehrman, he just focuses on this factor. That's irrelevant because we have this side of the equation where we assume God does exist. Um, 
Okay, uh, cool. So I mentioned, Lewis, that I use a Bayes-ish approach. Um, so there is a difference. I don't use the proper Bayes theorem formula because if you see here, this remember, this should be, um, uh, sorry, yeah, this is the proper formula. The conditional probability that we would have the evidence of the empty tomb or appearances given the resurrection is true. But instead, I just do a simplistic, subjective, direct probability, right? Like what... I think that the resurrect, given the empty tomb evidence, I think it's 60% proven the resurrection happened directly uh, from that evidence. Or the appearance of the 12, I'm 70% uh, proven that the resurrection is true. So it's it's a more simplistic, intuitive way for, for people that aren't mathematicians and don't want to get into conditional probabilities. You're just asking, well, look, I have this bit of evidence or this set of evidence, evidence is plural, what's the probability that those evidences directly prove that the resurrection is true in my estimation? And that's what I would assign as my subjective probability values total for the res the appearance of the 12, the sh shroud of trans images, um, the vindication prediction argument and et cetera. And I would plug that into Bayes plus the prior probability, which I set as the default uh, 50% um, because again, um, without any, evidence in the absence of evidence you always follow the principle of indifference and in bayesian terminology 50 percent doesn't affect the calculation it's either true or the hypothesis is either false there's an equal likelihood um so that that's why i would just assign 50 percent here um so yeah uh hopefully that will make sense in terms of the difference between bayes proper where it's a conditional probability of the evidence given we assume the resurrection happened versus what I did. I just said, well, given the evidence, I think the probability that the resurrection is true is 60% or whatever value I was able to get to on that front. Um, okay, cool. So this is the final slide. It's just an example. So let's say the hypothesis is God exists um, and we have the, the cosmological argument at 65% the ontological argument at 90% and the moral argument at 75%. And then you have the negative evidences for atheism and you assign the problem of evil 70%. These are just made up numbers, by the way. Um, hiddenness of God, 95%. Um, so doing that, you have to convert it into positive terms because the hypothesis is God exists, not God does not exist. So that means given the problem of evil, there's a 30% chance that God exists given the problem of evil. And there's only a 5% probability God exists given the hiddenness of God, again, for, for the sake of argument. So, okay, great. You plug all of those figures in, all of the positive evidences as well as the negative uh, evidences against God. And we have the 50-50 prior, I would argue, for, for that hypothesis. And that comes out to 5385 Therefore, you should believe God exists, probably exists. Um, so with that, that is it. I will finally shut up and, and let you guys ask some questions. Oops. Lewis, uh, yeah, you could take it wherever you want to go. Make sure to unmute, though. Can't hear you. You're muted. Yeah, still can't hear you. Let me get rid oh, of this headset. It was the headset that was creating okay. problems. So yeah, we I'm can hear you. Okay, so I was making a few notes 
on some of the things that came up and I'm going to try to go through them in roughly the order that they came up in the presentation. So starting with the idea of um, religion authenticating miracles. So uh, I do have a few questions regarding that. One is the, um, in, you know, one of the criteria for something being a religion on authenticating miracle you mentioned was that it would be have to be something that is um cannot be explained mechanistically or be a, a supernatural or be a merely natural way i think if i was a, a non-theist a non-supernaturalist one of my pushbacks against that would be that any natural explanation is inherently more uh probable than a supernatural one like just to give a really um really extreme example let's say i'm an atheist and you presented me with evidence for jesus rising from the dead i could argue that oh you know gas escaping from jesus dead body moved the body around in such a way that it looked like he had risen from the dead that sounds ridiculous but it's explaining the event purely naturally and because it's purely natural it's still more probable than an actual resurrection yeah so okay so i guess a couple things to say so the, the first thing i would say is um uh my terminology i i don't i try to avoid supernatural versus natural because i mm -hmm. i think that's kind of a misnomer right it i think we're looking for extraordinary versus ordinary because you know the bible will refer to miracles as things that are signs and wonders so mm -hmm. that can be supernatural or it could include certain natural events. Certain natural events, I think, I would argue, could be extraordinary. Now, okay, if somebody makes a prior probability argument that an extraordinary event, whether supernatural or natural, is by definition improbable relative to ordinary natural mechanisms, that's where we're getting into the prior probability issue. And I would just say, well, what, on what grounds, right? It, number one, if we can prove God exists, that's a game changer because on the background knowledge, maybe I, I can say God does exist. And that provides us a mechanism for creating uh, for miracles taking place or extraordinary events taking place. So that that's a total game changer in terms of the prior probabilities. Um, you also um, I, I think it's you can't just assume that uh, natural events. Um, OK, well, let me say it this way. Do you, I, the way I broke up my criteria for a religion authenticating miracle, it actually corresponds again to um, specified complexity or intelligent design criteria. So the, the extraordinariness is kind of us proving that it's a complex, improbable event given ordinary natural mechanisms. And the religious uh, authenticating context is mm -hmm. the kind of like this specified pattern, the specification criterion. So Essentially, I'm arguing for an intelligently designed event where we can identify because of the religious context that the, the designer is God and he's he's designing this event to authenticate a given religion. So I would just say, well, intelligently designed events are highly probable. They happen all the time. And since we can prove God exists as a intelligent person that can design things, there's nothing improbable about uh, an event being intelligently designed by God. Mm -hmm. All right. That makes sense. So 
we can, let's say we verify some religion authenticating miracles. Let's go with the resurrection again as an example. Okay. Uh, one of your criteria is that the earliest religion to claim it um, uh, gets that miracle. Uh, I'm wondering what you make with, of, for example, um, Rabbi Pinchas Lapid, who is a Jewish scholar who wrote on the resurrection. And he argues that Jesus did rise from the dead but it doesn't necessarily prove Christianity because you, you could argue from maybe a Jewish perspective that uh, it was merely God vindicating him for uh, preaching in favor of righteousness. And in that way, Judaism can claim it. And, you know, if Judaism, Judaism chronologically precedes Christianity, they may have arguably a greater claim than Christianity on the miracle. How would you respond to something like that? Oh, well, I, I think the obvious response is, well, Pincus Lapid was a 20th century scholar, so he's not, his interpretation is not the first chronologically. I, th I think mm -hmm. none of the Jews, non-Christian Jews living in Jesus' day had that interpretation. Um, so really, chronologically, the Christians were the first interpretation where he did die and rise from the dead as proof for the mm -hmm. gospel message. So, mm. Yeah, that is a good point. Well, I mean... I don't know how many Jews would be willing to accept Lapid's explanation to begin with. He seems to be in the minority in that one. Um, would you say that perhaps we can also use uh, REMs not just to determine the true religion is, but also the true denomination within that religion? Like we can say Christianity is the truth, and but then bicker over does that mean Catholicism, Orthodoxy, or Protestantism. And I know that in Catholicism, um, we are very fond of all sorts of miracles, Eucharistic miracles, Marian apparitions, etc. And we view those as evidences in favor of Catholicism. Uh, how would you look at those sorts of denomination-specific RAMs? Yeah, so, so obviously when I developed my method, um, I had in mind comparing and contrasting religions. But mm -hmm. I think you can apply the same criteria, REMs, at least in theory, to decide between denominations or sects and stuff like that mm -hmm. within a religion. Yeah. Um, I, um, now, you would have to go through the same criteria and that sort of thing. And I have doubts. So my friend Caleb Jackson, he's actually writing an entire book on miracles where he looks at Eucharistic miracles and, and the Marian apparitions and that sort of thing. And the main thing that I, I had with, with him, do, do these things prove Catholicism over Protestantism or Orthodoxy or whatever? And I'm not sure that they do because I'm not sure that we are able to establish that they're actually serving to authenticate the Catholic mm -hmm religion the catholic denomination and stuff like that so i would like to see the work just because uh you know something shows up in egypt which i admit i i can't i think it's an extraordinary event right where newspapers mm -hmm. reporting on it and stuff is it really a marian apparition can we prove that's mary how are we arguing that um and how are we showing that it's actually serving to authenticate catholicism um because there there are so taking it to healings, right? Mm -hmm. There are different purposes, specified purposes for why God does miracles. Not everything that's an extraordinary event is a religion authenticating one. So for me, miracle healings, for example, I don't think those are meant to be religion authenticating miracles. I think those are miracles of compassion where God will heal an atheist. He's not authenticating religious message. He's compassionate for someone that needs healing and 
in his providence, he's healed this person. So, um, yeah, that, that's kind of my thing is I would like to see more work on how do we get that religion authenticating context? <clears throat> yeah, uh, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I know, you know, you, I don't know how much you've researched into those specific ones that I mentioned, but would you say at the bare minimum that you think that they may be authentic or are you not convinced that they actually happened? Um, so there's some that I'm convinced uh, that I, I don't think happened or, or they're just natural explanations. There are okay. a few where I'm, there's, they're extraordinary. I think they've been proven to be extraordinary events, oh. <clears throat> whether they're yeah. demons or what they are. Um, yeah. 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 I've heard Protestants who argue that um, the Marian apparitions are real, but it was actually Satan pretending to be a Virgin Mary, but that's a whole nother ballpark. <laughs> Uh, I guess, you know, if somebody was coming from a Protestant perspective, that would be the way to go. Um, well, one one thing I'll I'll back you guys up. If it is uh, provably uh, Mary or something like that, there is this issue of undue confusion, right? Because God and God can't allow for confusion that would un uh, unjustifiably hinder someone from mm -hmm. achieving their ultimate purpose. So. If you if you've got a Marian apparition that looks like a, a truly looks like Mary, and is saying something like "Hey, I'm showing up. Uh, Catholicism is true. Uh, drop drop your drop your Protestantism and Orthodoxy. Go to Catholicism." I don't think that could be Satan tricking us because that that would be God allowing Satan to cause undue confusion. So, um, because I had the same issue right when I talked to Shabir Ali about the shroud. He said, oh, well, sure, those are supernatural, but Satan did those. And my way out of it was saying, no, we, we can trust in it because God would not allow a reasonable real seeker to be unduly confused in that way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Now, going back to the resurrection, um, you mentioned that the one main thing that convinces you of the resurrection is the appearance of the twelve. Um, but you mentioned, so that's to the exclusion of all the other facts that are sometimes presented as evidence for the resurrection, right? I'm thinking of the minimal facts approach. Yeah. Uh, so you would say that those other, um, facts do not qualify as authenticating. Um, am I understanding correctly? Uh, yeah. can you explain why you, you're not convinced like maybe the women or the empty tomb are good arguments for it? Yeah, so so I think uh, so. Like I said, I I do accept th these are proven historical facts. They they mm -hmm. the empty tomb is a fact. It requires an explanation, right? So it's I'm only skeptical on the explanatory level. Are they a religion authenticating miracle, or can they be explained equally naturally and, and that sort of thing? And so the empty tomb is uh, obvious that somebody would have stolen the body. I don't think it was one of the main twelve. I think it would have had to have been. A Christian who had heard Jesus preaching, he, he was obviously aware of Jesus' predictions about his mm -hmm. death and vindication within three days and that sort of thing, because otherwise the timing would be off. So I don't think it was just some coincidence that the body went missing that day. But I think someone associated with Jesus who heard his predictions um, took the body um, for some mm -hmm. reason. That's an equally likely explanation. Mm -hmm. And they didn't. Oh, go ahead. How they get past the big rock and the guards? 
Uh, well, I, I think that's legendary. I don't think that's uh, historically mm. true in those elements. But Okay, fair enough. Um, the guard, anyway, sorry. Oh, the guards. Okay. Um, let me see. Uh, what else do I have on here? You mentioned also that one of the evidences for the resurrection is the fact that Jesus predicted it, but couldn't a skeptic argue that maybe those predictions were in after the fact? Like maybe, you know, the gospel writers decided to insert into Jesus' words predictions about his own death. Yeah. Um, okay. So just the just the thing to clarify, the prediction. I don't use that as evidence for the resurrection. It's actually the reverse. I wow. I use the resurrection once we've proven that with the shroud and the historical evidence. That proves that there was an additional miracle, namely Jesus's prediction. Um, now, in terms of how we prove it happened before, this is where we get into Mike Lacona's um, scholarly arguments. He provides about five to six arguments. Right. So. It, He'll say his predictions are multiply attested independently in different traditions. And I, I can bring that up if you want, where, where he gets it from. It's also evident early attestation and that sort of thing. Or he'll point to the criterion of embarrassment. So one of the predictions, he's kind of, Peter speaks out boldly and he gets it right. And he's, oh, good, good on you. But then he says something else and he gets it wrong. And then Peter, you know, get, get thee behind me, Satan, and stuff like that. So... This is a criterion of embarrassment. It's not likely to have been invented by the church later on. It's probably something that actually happened historically between Jesus and Peter. And uh, yeah, there's other things like uh, he, he talks about his predictions in the context of the title of the Son of Man. And there's been a lot of work saying that that's something Jesus used. That's a title only Jesus used. The, the early church didn't call Jesus the Son of Man. They called the early apostles called him something else. So that's another indicator that his predictions attached to the Son of Man went back to the historical Jesus before his death. Yeah, fair, fair. That's Those are some good responses. Uh, I do have one more. Um, I have one more question on here, and then maybe we can take some of the questions or comments from the audience. Um, as you know, I am big on... Christianity versus Islam, and I've done quite a bit of work on arguments for the Quran as well, um, especially the Quran numerical miracles one. Um, so just a clarifying question, because I wasn't clear on this and you were presenting it. Are you of the opinion that the numerical miracles count as an RAM or not? No, they don't. I, they if, don't. if I did, I'd be I'd be a Muslim today. Kind of Fair. Thing, right? Yeah. Plus you, yeah, that's true. Plus you'd have like this weird situation where you have um, RAMs for competing religions, which is an awkward position to be in. Exactly. Um, actually, my personal take on the math miracles is that it's basically one huge Texas sharpshooter argument where you look for patterns and then you pre and then you determine that they are um, miraculous. Do you think that would be a good? sort of like counter to that particular claim? Uh, I, I, I think it is for a lot of them, maybe, maybe not all of them, um, but that, mm. that's related to that issue of specification. Remember that um, what you just said, they're creating fabrications. And that's one of the reasons I reject a lot of their things is they're, they're finding these patterns and, th and then they're saying, oh, well, see multiples of seven, multiples of 19. We're, we're, 
they're not giving independent reasons to specify those patterns apart from, well, these are the patterns we found. And that's a fabrication. That That's a way that we say that it's not intelligent design. Uh, mm -hmm. No, we need to prove a specification. And, you know, I, Shabir Ali attempts that for some of the patterns, but not most of them. And even of the ones where they specify it, they can't prove using the math that it's a complex event. So you, they can't prove intelligent design there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, those are some... Yeah, those are some good um, counters. Um, yeah. To be honest, I've never really found any of the arguments particularly convincing. Uh, so I, unlike you, I've never had a moment where I ever really seriously thought, hey, maybe Islam could be the true religion. Uh, but, you know, that's just me. I can't speak yeah, to anyone else's I think it was, I think it was the combination of like, because remember, under subsumability um, kind of thing, uh, so it was the case that Islam was going to subsume the evidences I had for Christianity because yeah. Gabriel Said Reynolds convinced me that there's not a contradiction. Mm -hmm. And it, all of a sudden it was looking like it had this independent uh, uh, ram uh, attesting to itself. Um, so yeah, I think that combination was kind of what, what did it. But again, I looked into it and they don't have a, the numerical patterns are not rams. They're just random chance. Mm -hmm. Yep, I agree. So maybe at this point we can um, address some of the stuff that some of the listeners have brought up, especially regarding some of the Bayesian material. Okay. So I'll post the, I'll repost some of the comments in the private chat as well. So one of them from Storyteller is, I wonder what Dale thinks about Hume's argument against miracles, that it's sometimes given a Bayesian form. Yeah, so obviously I disagree strongly with Hume. Uh, Hume, I've, I've done an entire show on why. Um, so number one, Hume made his argument prior to Bayes' theorem. The, the probability calculus formula didn't exist in his day. And because of that, he's uh, kind of got a, a false calculation going on. He's only focusing on one aspect, the prior probability. He's, he's totally ignoring the explanatory power uh, probabilities and that sort of thing. Um, outside outside of just he got the probability calculus wrong. Um, there's another thing where I'm kind of unique. I, I've never seen anybody else give this critique of David Hume, but his argument is, is it's not even necessarily against miracles, but it's against testimonial evidence for miracles uh, mm -hmm. against versus the uniform experiential knowledge we have of the uniformity of nature. And on the testimonial evidence, um, David Hume assumes a reductionist standpoint on the epistemology of testimony, which means you don't believe testimony unless and until you have um, a source of warrant, uh, a non-testimonial source of warrant for believing it. I take, and I've, most philosophers today in the epistemology of testimony take a non-reductionist position on that whereby testimony itself, testimonial evidence, is a basic and fundamental form of evidence, just like source of evidence, like our memories or reasoning and stuff like that. It's basic in itself. And so it is to be believed unless it had, unless it's de uh, defeated and there's no defeater defeater for it. Um, so yeah, um, obviously when it comes to miracles, Hume gives his argument that there are some attached 
defeaters because we have tons of counterfeit claims and false claims. But I think that there are defeater defeaters for that. And that's partly what my RAM is about, right? If we've got a miracle uh, or an event fulfilling these criteria, then that defeats the general defeaters that Hume gives for believing in testimonial evidence for miracles. Yeah, this is true. And yeah, Hume, a lot of um, skeptics are, best way to describe it, they're basically lazy humans. Like yeah. they repeat Hume's arguments, but without the same level of rigor that Hume applied to them. Uh, exactly. I don't know if you'd agree with that sort of um, observation. Absolutely. Um, now, there's two comments, but they're basically the same thing. So okay. one person, Brad Mead, says, I think probability calculus is a very generous definition of Bayes' theorem. The Bayes' theorem depends on prior assumptions, which are subjective. This does not lend itself to reliable solutions. And then another commenter asks, my main issue is why do you even do this Bayesian or Bayesian-ish approach? Isn't it at the end subjective how much weight you put on each factor? Yeah, so, uh, so it's entirely true that the probability values I plug into Bayes' theorem are ultimately subjective. The, the individual things are subjective. But I mean, this is, this is not a problem. First of all, academic philosophers and logicians, we use subjective probabilities all the time. Uh, in decision theory, for example, and we don't, it's not true that we need fr a frequentist or objective statistical based probabilities. For most things in life, when we make decisions, we can't do that. Um, uh, secondly, I would argue that, look, whether you're assigning subjective probability values or not, every single one of you is doing the exact same thing I did. You're, you're assessing the individual bits of evidences, and maybe you're not consciously assigning a number value to it. But in your head, you've got the strength or weakness, your level of credence for those evidences. And then you jumble that up in your head and you come out, well, overall, I believe Christianity or I believe Jesus rose from the dead or you don't. So you're doing the same thing. But so sure, maybe we might suffer from guy go one problems. You might say my subjective assessment is just garbage in, garbage out. You've got the same problem on your end. But where I'm better than you and more objective in using Bayes is that at least I don't just jumble up the factors in my head. I actually use a, a formula to calculate, okay, given these inputs, what is the overall total? And on that front, my total using Bayes is objective. It is mathematically perfect um, and stuff like that. So great. We can argue about the individual bits of evidence and whether you think, you know, my reasoning as to why I assigned this level of credence versus a higher or lower one that you would, Right, we can debate that, but that's the same thing we would be doing whether I assign a number or not. Um, it just mm -hmm. helps mitigate against right. bias by assigning numbers. Yeah, so if I understand correctly, far from being a way of expressing your bias, it's actually a way to reduce the impact of your bias. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly, perfect, yeah. That, that That's a great way of explaining it. I'm, I'm glad you brought it that way. Um, Hmm, interesting. I've never heard of what this person uh, mentioned before. Um, question, Dave. Have you taken a look in the similarities between the Shroud of Turin and the Hungarian prayer book drawings? What is the possibility of accidentally have such similar patterns, holes? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've done entire shows on it um, and stuff like that. So he's talking about the 
Hungarian Prey Codex. And I actually mentioned mm -hmm. this on your show. Um, so this is a, a man, an illuminated manuscript that dates to about 1192 to 1195. And it depicts, um, according to the ProShred side, it depicts the, the, first of all, in the top panel, Jesus in uh, the same position as the Shroud Man, right? He has the right arm over the left. He's only showing four fingers. His thumbs are uh, retracted. Uh, he's also got a the eps, what's called the epsilon wound on his head, and they and he's totally naked, which was unheard of at that time. You would never depict Jesus naked in that time. It was very taboo socially. Um, and then in the lower panel, we have the shroud cloth itself, which evidences the herringbone weave. And what the listener is talking about is the most convincing thing to me is there's a pattern of L-shaped circles on it, which represent on the shroud, we have a series of L, four L-shaped holes that they call the poker holes. And, you know, some people, it, we don't know how it got there, but it burns through the entire cloth. And it, it looks like it's in the same position and the same L-shape um, on this manuscript that's on the shroud. And this is why textile experts like Dr. Methchild Florilenberg say that whoever made this manuscript must have seen the Shroud of Turin. So, yeah. Oh, you're muted, Lewis. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I've got a couple more uh, that I wanted to toss out there. So one is asked, Zachary's asking, can you assign a spectrum instead of a number? And then Brad asks, I'd like to hear Dale address Dr. Gerald Schroeder's theory on God's existence. I'd be very interested in his critique. Okay. Uh, so yeah, in terms of the spectrum, absolutely. That's what I do. Some, sometimes I assign ranges, right? So, um, and what, okay, well, what number would you plug into Bayes? I would always go with, again, worst case scenario, whatever's the lowest against the religion or Christianity, I, I would go with that kind of thing, right? Um, so, but yeah, I, I assign ranges all the time because sometimes it's not uh, clear cut. It's not a precise figure that is my subjective level of credence. Um, and again, that that's totally fine. I, I allow for what's called the reasonableness range. So look, my level of credence, I'm not arguing if I assign 60% to the resurrection or the appearance of the 12, I'm not saying, well, in order to be a reasonable real seeker, Lewis, you also have to assign 60%. No, I, I don't go for the uniqueness. Uh, well, actually, I do. But I don't. between humans, I don't go for what's called the uniqueness thesis. I allow for permissivism. Different levels of credences are rationally permitted. And you can still be a reasonable person in doing that. So that's what I call the reasonable range. Maybe given the evidence, Lewis's 65% and I'm 60%. Okay, but we're still within this reasonableness range. He can plug in his values, I can plug in mine. But there's also people that may fall outside the reasonableness range. And we can objectively say that that person is, is irrational in the credence they assign. So for example, on the evidence for the Holocaust, maybe I'm 99% and Lewis is 99.8% or something. It's, it's beyond all reasonable doubt. But if you've got some guy saying, no, I'm only 20% convinced, that guy's, we can identify, he's not within the reasonableness range. Um, so yeah, my, my answer is I, I absolutely do allow for ranges. And in terms of plugging that into Bayes, I would always assign the lowest number or the number that hurt the case for Christianity. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe the second one on Schroeder's theory. Um, I read a little bit of Schroeder's work, but not in depth. So, you know, maybe you would know more about that. 
not offhand. What's what's his theory? Uh, um, yeah, I'm. I don't know. The uh, person who asked didn't really. Um, maybe they can um, give like a lengthier comment later on after the show, and then you can take a look at what exactly that entails. But yeah, I don't know what um, what that is. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I uh, say you know, send me uh, in the comments. I'll respond to you or something like that. So. All right. Yeah, I think we got all of them. Um, all the comments or questions. Awesome. Uh, how's it going down there, Michael? Did you? Uh, very, very productive. I'd like to get you back on the show to talk about the <clears throat> messianic prophecies Absolutely. and some of the pushback that I think you said Shmuley gave you in an airport. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, did uh, I hear that right? It was Shmuley, right? Yeah. No, uh, Tovai Singer. Yeah. Singer. Yeah. Sorry. Singer. Hey, um, if we're going to talk about that, I've done some work addressing Tovia Singer myself. So maybe we can tag team that topic. Absolutely. That would be Love perfect. That. So let's yeah. maybe discuss that off the air because I think that's desperately needed. I want to hear that. Awesome. Yeah. And I know many others will want to as well. So mm -hmm. we'll certainly uh, address that. Do you have a plug you want to put in for anything for the viewers? Uh, yeah. So, so I guess I, so I'm the host of Real Seekers. Um, so you can find me on YouTube or Rumble Video just by typing in Real Seekers, plural with an S. Um, also, I'm on a blog site, which is where I post up all my like scholarly papers or anything you guys want to look up. And it's realseeker, uh, so no S, ministries.wordpress.com. Um, otherwise, you can also see me on the Theo Geeks or the Faith Unaltered podcast from time to time as well. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And everybody stay tuned. Definitely going to have Dale back on and we'll talk about Messianic prophecies. So y'all can look forward to that. And Lewis, thank you so much for hosting this. Well done uh, with your segment of 1P3. And y'all can look forward to much more content from Lewis in the future. So, hey, everybody hit that like button and the subscribe button. Also, if you want to support me here at uh, Reason and Theology, patreon.com forward slash Reason and Theology is a great place to do it. There's also a GoFundMe link and a uh, PayPal link there in the show notes if y'all want to check that out. All right, that's going to do it. See y'all later.